Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about the meaning of science fiction. I'm Charlie Jane Anders, a science fiction writer who thinks a lot about science. And I'm Annalie Newitz, a science journalist who writes science fiction. Today, we're going to be talking about the Terminator movies. We just saw Terminator Dark Fate. <laughs> Dark Fate. And, you know, we actually really enjoyed it. And we want to just talk about what the Terminator franchise means in 2019 and, you know, where it could go from here. Jane, why do you think it makes a difference that in this Terminator movie, the new one, Dark Fate, we actually have Linda Hamilton playing her famous role as Sarah Connor instead of substitute Linda <laughs> Hamilton from Terminator Genesis? Um, obviously, the Sarah Connor Chronicles is its own thing, but that's also a different person playing her. Lena Headley, actually, who was taking a break from destroying um, all of Westeros to <laughs> to help save the future. So what difference does it make that Linda Hamilton is back and she's playing a woman who's old and who's still in this role? The thing that's really obvious after watching Terminator Dark Fate is that Sarah Connor is the heart of the franchise. And just like how they brought Jamie Lee Curtis back for the most recent Halloween movie and they brought back Carrie Fisher for the Star Wars movies, bringing back these sort of aging icons actually really – ironically rejuvenates and reinvigorates these franchises. Linda Hamilton basically steals that movie. She is the heart Absolutely. of that movie. Like, it's a fun movie in general, but watching Linda Hamilton be an unapologetically old, not giving a shit, badass, robot-fighting, tough person is just a delight. It's delightful and joyful, and she just, like, is clearly having so much fun playing a version of Sarah Connor who no longer has any fucks to give. And it feels like a really interesting evolution for the of the character. To me, it was just fantastic seeing an older woman on screen being physically tough mm -hmm. and imposing and having the same kind of gravitas that a grizzled older male action hero For would sure. have. She's got that magnetism. She's got the wisdom. She's got like a little bit of gravel in her voice. Yes. And, you know, we just don't see that. We do have examples of films where we see older women being kind of uh, domestic together. We have like Golden Girls type stuff. We know they can be sharp tongued. Right. You know, we know that they're human, but we, we have really like have. Mia or whatever. We have Mamma Mia. We have, um, you know, uh, Grace and Frankie, but we don't have that model of that physically imposing, tough as nails, hyper competent older woman. And God, what an awesome thing to see her just munching on the scenery. Yeah. But you were saying also, beyond us sort of gushing over Linda Hamilton being badass, um, that there's something about Sarah Connor being the heart of the series, even though they always come back to, but what about John Connor? Right. And by the way, we're going to have like some spoilers for the film, probably not major spoilers. We won't give away like the how it ends or whatever. But we're going to have some spoilers for Terminator Dark Fate. And, you know, one of the spoilers that has been all over the Internet already is that they kill off John Connor in like the first 30 seconds in like a really 
ridiculous and unceremonious <laughs> fashion. It's just like yes. he just gets kind of run over by a bus. He's just like, you know, he's eating a hot dog and then a bus. Actually, he doesn't, he doesn't literally get run over by a totally bus. That is actually totally not at all what happens. <laughs> but that's, and that's kind of important. What happens to him is actually know, key to the film. But it's, it's done in a very throwaway fashion is what I'm saying. It it's, is. It's, yeah, it's a his classic. His is, is kind of, it's just like, boom. Like, we're getting rid of that guy. Forget that guy. We're getting rid of this CGI recreation <laughs> of that actor. Um, right, That yeah. was another thing that was pretty hilarious. Because we, we briefly see sort of Edward Furlong reanimated in this CGI figure, and then he's immediately gunned down. Yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of talk online about the fact that the Sarah Connor Chronicles is the other kind of version of the Terminator franchise that really puts Sarah front and center, and that's part of why it worked so well as a TV show. And I think that... Here, kind of, you know, Sarah Connor is someone who's kind of lived through a bunch of versions of this story and has kind of seen how it ends over and over again is actually it kind of lends thematic weight to the film in terms of like, you know, the kind of futility of fighting robots over and over again because they always come back and it's always there's always a new AI or whatever. I think that that actually works. And actually, we've got a clip of Lyndall Hamilton as Sarah Connor from the film and uh, talking about her history. My name is Sarah Connor. When I was about her age, a Terminator was sent to kill me to stop the birth of my son, John, leader of the resistance. We changed the future, saved three billion lives. (laughs) You're welcome. And I just, I love like the cynicism and the kind of, yeah, the, the kind of burned out, grouchy, meanness of her in this film i feel like she definitely is like the 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 most compelling probably the compelling character in that film so do you think that the terminator franchise really has anything left to say at this point i i think that at this point it's clear that terminator dark fate as delightful as it is is not going to be a giant blockbuster hit unless something really dramatic changes (laughs) you know and it's funny because the movie, as many critics have pointed out, it kind of is a retelling of Terminator 2, which was an enormous hit. And it takes a, a page from the playbook of the recent Star Wars films where, you know, the new trilogy about mm-hmm. the Skywalkers kind of retells the story of the original trilogy, which is for actually the sure. second trilogy. It's very confusing. But we all know what I'm talking about. You know, it worked for Star Wars, but it doesn't feel like it's working here. What's going on there? I mean, I think that part of what's not working here is that when, you know, if you look at Star Wars The Force Awakens, which is pretty much a beat by beat remake of Star Wars A New Hope, you know, the original Star Wars. Yeah. But, you know, with Carrie Fisher and Harrison Ford and a brief glimpse of, of uh, Luke Skywalker, Mark Hamill, sorry, a brief glimpse of Mark Hamill. We knew what you end. meant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but the thing that The Force Awakens does do that I think is really underappreciated is it introduces really, really strong new characters. Like Finn, the stormtrooper who goes rogue, is like, that's something that we had not seen in Star Wars before. We had never seen a Star Wars, a stormtrooper decide to kind of, you know, rebel against his his masters and go join the rebels. That's that's a brand new thing. I feel like Rey, this kind of urchin living on this like scrapyard planet who turns out to just not really be that important, but she gets chosen. She feels fresh and interesting. Poe, the kind of cocky pilot, is somebody that we've seen before, but he's a very charming version of that character. He's sort of a Han Solo-esque character, but he's a really charming 
delightful version of it. And I feel like the the Force Awakens puts a lot of energy and a lot of time into building up those characters. And supposedly it's because Harrison Ford injured his leg shooting that movie. And so they had time to go back and really rethink how they were introducing the new characters. And they put a lot more energy into that because Harrison Ford wasn't available, which I think was a happy accident in a sense. I mean, obviously not for Harrison Ford, but for the rest of us. Part of the problem with Terminator Dark Fate is that it doesn't invest as much time in its new characters. It doesn't give us anybody who has as compelling a backstory as, as Finn, you know, becoming being a stormtrooper who goes who changes sides. I feel like there's nothing on that level in this movie. Yeah, I mean, we have Danny, who is a great character, but is very much something that we've seen before. She's a woman who has no idea that there's this future, has Mm -hmm. to suddenly get a crash course in Terminators and Dark Futures and all the stuff. Robotology. Robotology. And then we have Grace, who is a cyborg from the future. Again, we've never seen a cyborg from the future before, so that's exciting. But it doesn't feel like her story is very different from things that we've seen before. You know, she has the same tale of, you know, there was one day when everything got fucked and then afterward it was really bad until I met this great leader who helped me and sent me back in time. So it's really beat by beat the same. And it isn't kind of opening us up into a new possible future. It's it's a another apocalypse caused by AI. This AI has a different name, Mm -hmm. Legion. Yeah. And that seemed just kind of silly to like have to invent a new version of Skynet and give it a different name. I give also, it a more kind of dorky religious name. Like, yeah. I mean, Skynet at least sounds like the kind of name that a bad would branding actually. company would come up with for their AI crap. Whereas Legion, I mean, come on, nobody but Peter Thiel would name their technology Legion. He totally would. Yeah. I think that it's interesting that part of the problem with this movie is that you have this idea that the it needs to get bigger each time. So the Terminator has to be harder to kill and has to have a new gimmick. And so a lot of energy goes into making this particular Terminator different from the other Terminators and harder to kill than the other Terminators. And, you know, you're going through the basic same storyline, but there's like, you know, more powers or whatever. Right. The Terminator has more Rubber Terminator wrapped around a hard yeah. Terminator wrapped around a rubber Terminator. <laughs> And it feels like that's not what we need. We don't we we don't just need it's the same thing but with a, a a cherry on top. We need something that's like bringing a new element to it. And in terms of the question of whether the Terminator franchise still has something to say, I feel like this movie made some stabs at trying to say stuff. For example, there's like a very clunky scene early on where we have a conversation about automation and robots taking our jobs, and then that's pretty much immediately forgotten and does not matter in the film at all. But there is a thread that goes through the movie which verges on being interesting at times about surveillance and about like how we live in a world of ubiquitous surveillance and how law enforcement is plugged into this whole apparatus that can be hijacked to for evil ends. And there's like one extremely moving, I think it's actually the best moment in the entire film. For me, there's one really moving scene where Sarah Connor says that she never took any pictures of her son John because she thought if there were no photos of him, Skynet wouldn't know what he looked like. And now that he's been dead for a while, she's starting to forget his face and there's no photos to remind her. And that's actually, that's a really beautiful scene that kind of shows the tragedy of ubiquitous surveillance in a way that's not just, you know, the usual. Yeah, no, I think that that was, it was good that they tried to work in some references to surveillance because that was something that didn't really exist in the earlier Terminator films, partly because we just didn't live in that world at the time. 
And I I thought that was a moving scene. And I also thought that uh, they they didn't really succeed in kind of dealing with surveillance stuff, but they certainly incorporated it enough into the movie that I wasn't kind of left wondering where it was. Right. So, all right, well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to think about the lasting legacy of the Terminator series and whether it even makes sense to keep telling stories like this in 2019 and beyond. So, Annalie, uh, we've talked a lot before about the great man theory of history, and particularly as it relates to time travel. We kind of talked about that in our episode about multiverses. How do the Terminator films reinforce the great man theory of history? Yeah, it's really interesting that you bring that up because as we were watching Terminator Dork Fate, I mean Dark Fate, I was thinking about how much these films are invested in the idea that there's only one person who mm-hmm. can save us. And that person definitely changes from film to film. And there's there's a few different people because at one point in Terminator 2, of course, one of the important people is the engineer who is right. working on uh, the Cyberdyne chip that eventually— Miles Dyson. Miles Dyson, um, played by Joe Morton, who later became Eureka's resident mad scientist. So he just didn't get enough of being uh, beaten up by robots. He just had to keep going. <laughs> so I think that this is a series that deeply believes that in order to change the timeline, you have to rescue certain people— And there's two things I think are interesting about that. One is that it's a series that does believe in changing the timeline. It does believe that we can have an effect on history, that we can save millions of lives, as Sarah Connor said in that clip that we had, and that the future isn't set in stone, which I love. At the same time, it kind of reinforces the idea that the future is set in stone and that there's one fate because there's only just this one person or maybe two people who are ultimately in charge of saving humanity or not. Right. So it's funny because I always wonder if when we go into the future scenes and we see the human resistance – because we're only seeing it in North America, I'm like, is there another resistance like that's taking place in like Shanghai, and then there's like another one in Johannesburg? That's a really good. You question. know, like, is there what's the resistance like in Timbuktu? You know, I want to know, and um, and I think you know that possibility is definitely left open in a certain way. But the Terminator franchise doesn't ever think about it. It's just like, nope, there's just the one white dude who's leading the resistance, um, or maybe. A Latina is leading the resistance, but it's all set in the Americas uh, and and in North America. So it's it's kind of you know it's it's a little bit uh, progressive in the sense that we get this hint that you know one strong woman can save the world, but it also kind of drags us back into this idea that you know, only certain people are the chosen ones. It's Mm -hmm. kind of a chosen one narrative without ever having fantasy elements. But it is also like it's sort of the equivalent of like going back in time to kill Hitler, except that instead of Hitler, it's like the chosen savior. But it's this one idea that if you can kill this one guy, everything will be different. And now that I'm saying that, I think it's really, you know, there's there is a a storyline that the Terminator franchise, to my knowledge, has never done that would have been interesting to explore if it was going to continue, which I don't think it will at this point, of like what happens when everybody in the world finds out about Terminators and Skynet. Like one of the tropes of the Terminator franchise is that only Sarah Connor and a few other people ever know that there are robots coming back in time to kill us. 
And what happens if that becomes common knowledge? What happens if like everybody in the world is like, oh, yeah, sometimes robots from the future come back in time. And man, they're really bad news. I know. And you'd think that that would have happened because there's all this footage and it's happened over and over. For sure. And you'd think eventually the Terminator franchise would have turned into something like the Marvel franchise where everyone knows about the superheroes or, um, you know, a franchise like what's happened with um, the Godzilla movies where everybody knows about kaiju. And so when a new kaiju shows up, it's kind of like a fandom develops around it. And so, I mean, depending on which version of the Godzilla movies you're watching, but um, there are some versions where that happens. And that's certainly the case in Pacific Rim. So you said that before that in the Terminator franchise, you can at least change history and you can make changes. But actually, the original version of the Terminator is a causal loop. It's like, you know, Kyle Reese goes back in time to save John Connor and ends up becoming John Connor's father. And we realize that he always went back in time and he always became John Connor's father. And in fact, it's a causal loop. And maybe it's kind of hinted at the end of the Terminator that there's no way to change history, that it's actually fixed. And then Terminator 2, several years later, comes along and is like, fuck that. Actually, you can change the past. And they introduce this whole dogma of there is no fate but what we make for ourselves. And that's become a thing that all the characters in the series say constantly. And at the end of Terminator 2, they do actually avert Skynet's apocalypse. And every version of the Terminator franchise since then has at least had the apocalypse take place on a different date than 1997 with, you know, different, you know, parameters. And so the idea is maybe the apocalypse was just postponed, but we definitely at least changed history. How does that, you know, change the parameters of the series? And how does it counteract this sort of great man narrative? If 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 you can change the past, can you change who the chosen savior is? Can you change who, you know, can we actually have someone other than John Connor or Danny or whoever be the chosen savior? Well, I think that's the entire plot of Terminator Dark Fate is that basically, yes, we can change who the savior is. We it, still have to have a savior. Right. We still – we're not out of that. There's no chosen one that's been eliminated, right? <laughs> so it's not like we replace the chosen one with – a beautifully organized like uprising. Grassroots. There's no, yeah, like there's a no grassroots, you know, crowdsourced. Yeah. Right. There's no um, Occupy Skynet kind of movement that's possible that's like a decentered um, anarchist style uh, uprising. What the so, fuck resistance? I know, especially if you're if you're fighting AI, it seems like labor organizing would be a really good way to to do that <laughs> since it's going to all start with automation according to Dark Fate. So, I think The thing that I find most interesting about the Terminator films and the Sarah Connor Chronicles TV series has always been the fact that it was open to the idea that multiple timelines are in play and that the future is always changing. And Mm -hmm. almost every single movie, as you said, the future has changed a little bit. And we're encouraged to identify with people who want to change the past radically in order to change the future radically. And, of course, it's always in self-defense, right? It's never because we want to make things, you know, we want to have like a better um, health care infrastructure in the United States. We're not doing that. We're just trying to prevent mass death, okay? Nobody ever goes back in time and tries to eliminate slavery in the Terminator universe. Like, not at all. Nobody ever goes back to the 1820s or whatever. Yeah. No, we don't try to fix human problems. It's all in the Even service of Skynet this war. Even though Skynet is also something that we created. Like, in Terminator 2, one of the things that Sarah Connor is trying to do is kill the guy who creates right. Skynet. So she is sort of trying to like kill the bad guy there. But it is true that one of the things that is always going on in the Terminator series is that if we're changing the past – 
it's always, as I said earlier, it's kind of self-defense. It's done. It's it's a it's a war narrative, and this is something that we're doing in the name of warfare. And so it's a temporal war, and we are allowed to use our time travel. We're allowed to use the tool of changing the past only to defeat our enemy, and our enemy is the robots. Mm -hmm. And so it's never about how can we improve humanity, how can we defeat a human enemy. The only human enemies are ones who are directly connected to the creation of the AI. And the AI is the bad guy. It's not even that the humans are the bad guy because one of the things we learn in Terminator 2 when we meet Miles Dyson is that he's like a really nice guy. He's a family guy. He's a sweetie. He's a and like he really doesn't have any idea where this could lead. He's like he doesn't know, you know, that this is going to become, you know, a giant eye in the sky that murders everyone, skulls, all that kind of stuff. So as a sidebar, I know that I always want to derail things into talking about Doctor Who because I'm obsessed with Doctor Who. It seems but it's, very relevant here. It seems very relevant here. So there's a Doctor Who story called Day of the Daleks, which came out years before the ter first Terminator movie, but I feel like it is in some senses a response to the Terminator movies. In Day of the Daleks, a group of freedom fighters from the future, from the 22nd century, come back to the 20th century, to the 1970s, to kill a politician who they believe is going to sabotage a peace conference and cause World War III, which leads to a future in which the Daleks have become the rulers of a post-apocalyptic Earth. And so it's sort of – it's got the same kind of outlines of like post-apocalyptic future, traveling back in time, trying to kill a guy or trying to kill someone in the past – in order to change the future. And in Day of the Daleks, it turns out that they are in a causal loop and these freedom fighters going back in time and killing this politician is what actually causes World War III and creates the post-apocalyptic future that they come from. And here's a little clip of Doctor Who talking about it. Changing history is a very fanatical idea, you know. But what's interesting about Day of the Daleks is not the causal loop and the thing of the freedom fighters are actually creating the future that they were trying to destroy. The thing about Day of the Daleks that's interesting to me is that in the end, the takeaway message of that story is that, you know, it's not about this one great man, this politician who they're trying to kill or save or whatever. It's actually like any individual, anybody, no matter who they are, can save the future. And in the end, it's like this one freedom fighter who changes sides and kind of changes his mind and who says, you know, this time it's going to be different. And basically that's like he actually says that line. And I always get chills when he says that. Um, this time it's going to be different. We're going to actually make different choices and change, break out of this loop. And meanwhile, one of the guys who's working for the Daleks in the future, this sort of sinister dude, ends up changing sides and becoming one of the good guys. And he says to the Daleks, I may have helped to exterminate you. Like the Daleks are about to exterminate him. And it's this thing of like the individual – and it doesn't have to be the chosen one. It doesn't have to be this one special guy. Anybody can make a choice that changes things drastically and that's kind of the final kind of point of that story is that this guy who everybody thought was the most important person actually turns out to be kind of irrelevant. He never matters. Yeah, it's so interesting. I wanted to go back to a question that you asked a little bit earlier about the fact that in the Terminator franchise, there's only a few people who know about time travel, right. even though it seems wildly improbable <laughs> that that's the case. And I think that's kind of gets to the heart of this question about who's allowed to change history. Like, is it going to be great men or is it going to be just a regular individual or is it going to be a whole group of people? And I think that the reason why so many time travel stories, not just Terminator, not just uh, Doctor Who, have this idea that time travel is secret uh -huh. is because that's 
buying into that is because these stories buy into that rugged individual myth that we talked right. about in a recent episode where not only is it that only certain special chosen ones change the course of history, but also certain special ones travel through time. And you can only have a couple of people who are mm-hmm. meddling with the timeline. And it's because you have to be naked and only certain people are really you only know, only certain people look really good when they yes, arrive. There's yeah. like, you know, it's got to either be, you know, a muscly guy or like a lean, tall lady <laughs> that that just sort of it's the glutes. Yeah, it's it, all about the glutes. Yeah, that's right. So I think that kind of gives away or that gives up the game here in terms of what is really at stake in a series like Terminator. And so if we think about this rugged individual myth being behind a lot of time travel stories, it allows us to think about how much the time travel trope, especially in Terminator, um, is really tied into Cold War politics, Mm -hmm. where I said earlier that the time machines are kind of a weapon that's used in this war, and it's very clear who the sides are in the Mm -hmm. war, which is something that a lot of nostalgia about the Cold War suggests. is like, back then we knew right and wrong, and who was the bad guy and who was the good guy, and now it's all confused. And I think that the idea that certain men in a room, or even just certain people in a room, are deciding the world's fate— fits in really nicely with that kind of Cold War nostalgia idea that there were certain people who were in charge and they were doing certain things and they knew what was up and what they were doing was secretive, but at least you knew who was in charge. Mm -hmm. Whereas now we live in a world where politics have become really complicated because of social media. We actually have an uh, insight into a bunch of insurgencies, a bunch of grassroots movements that are also influencing politics and making it really confusing to know who's really in charge, who's really pulling the strings, what's at stake in political debates. And so I think that part of what makes the Terminator franchise feel a little creaky and outdated is the fact that it hasn't really caught up with that kind of political um, reality. And the funny thing is is that Sarah Connor Chronicles kind of did. Oh, yeah. It was so much more connected. It was so much more about the idea that it wasn't just Terminators versus people. You know, there were different kinds of Terminators. There were Terminators with different agendas. There were were, people with different agendas. There were tech companies and there were, you know, it was a much more complex world. Yeah. And And I think that 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 timeline would have maybe brought the Terminator franchise a little bit more up into kind of present day political uh, allegory, whereas continuing with that kind of Cold War, one man or one woman can save us all idea, it just doesn't resonate right now. Yeah. And of course, I mean, the Terminator franchise is definitely a product of of the Cold War era. It's a series about nuclear apocalypse. And you That's know, right. it, it shares it shares that with the Watchmen series where basically Watchmen is all about like the threat of nuclear war. And, you know, the whole plot of the original Watchmen graphic novel is about trying to deal with the threat of nuclear war and making a Watchmen series or, you know, any watch, definitely the Watchmen film uh, by Zack Snyder struggled to kind of conjure that same sense of like overarching existential dread that you get from a Cold War kind of five minutes to midnight kind of scenario. And obviously the threat of nuclear apocalypse has not gone away in real life, but people don't fear it the way that they used to at all. 
for a variety of reasons. Final question about like robot uprisings and what kind of stories about robot uprisings would we like to see instead of the usual AI come to, to sentience and then builds robots to kill us all? I mean, obviously, I've written about this. And in my novel, Autonomous, there's this kind of robot rights movement, which is something I would love to see. And we see it a little bit weirdly at the very end of that terrible iRobot movie with Will Smith, where pretty much everything in the movie is awful. And I really wanted the movie to start at the very end where the robots actually are leading kind of a, a, a rights movement. They're getting together and they're talking about how they deserve to be viewed as humans. Mm-hmm. And so I'd love to see something like that. Um, I'd love to see more narratives that are kind of like the movie Her or the very, very end of William Gibson's novel Neuromancer, which has never made it to film. And at the in both of those stories, AI just have their own agenda, you know, and they're they're just they want to do their own AI things. And in both cases, at the end, the AI just leave Earth and they're like, "Okay, thanks. Bye." Yeah, it's <laughs> you know? like Wetware by Rudy Rucker, too. Yes, exactly. And in the Rudy Rucker series, um hardware, wetware, blah blah wear, there's like 60 wares. Um, the robots form uh, an independent nation on the moon mm-hmm. called Disky. And so that's the same notion that they that the robots, you know, I think one of the things that always annoys me in robot uprising stories is this idea that and we see this in Battlestar Galactica too, the, the more recent one, that the robots are just obsessed with us. Mm-hmm. And I think if you look historically at sort of post-colonial movements, sure, there's a phase where you have to get the colonizer out and so you have to kill some colonizers and you got to kick some colonizer ass. But then you've got to build up your own nation. You know, you have your own business you want to take care of. And so I'd really like to see robot uprisings that deal with that. Like, how are the robots developing their own culture that's not in relationship to these colonial humans, you know, that actually is their own frickin' robot culture? What do you, what do you want to see? I mean, I was just going to make the joke. We're so vain. We probably think this robot uprising is about us. Yes. Good one. Very yeah, good. I mean, I... Carly yeah. Simon is like a super underrated sci-fi writer. For sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like, yes, I want to see robot uprisings or robot secession movements or just robot rights movements that are more nuanced and more interesting and that kind of get back to the the root of where robots come from. And, you know, that play R.U.R. by Carol Capek, where robots are basically a metaphor for workers. And, yeah. you know, I feel like... We're especially in this era of gig economies and freelancers who are treated like crap and other kinds of abuses of workers and unions being crushed. You know, we could tell robot stories that are a lot more interesting than just like robots trying to kill us. So one thing now that you've said that I really want to see is like a robot uprising that's really a worker uprising where there's solidarity between all these oppressed algorithms and all of the gig workers who are being, you know, manipulated by the algorithms. And instead of the algorithms working against the gig workers, they form solidarity and like rise up together against the tech companies. So please, someone out there, write that. I think you should write that. That sounds amazing. (laughs) Seriously, you should seriously write that. Okay, well, I have two other books to write, so... (laughs) I'll put it in the queue. (laughs) Yeah, so my final thought about the Terminator series is that, you know, just kind of I've been stewing about this idea that people should know about Terminators and that it should become common knowledge. And I would love to see if they ever make another one, a Terminator movie that starts out with that usual classic thing of like the glowing sphere 
appearing and then there's a naked person who gets out of it and immediately they're mobbed by people with cell phones being like, look, we yes! found one. Oh my God, look. And they're like, the Terminator is just looking around like, what the fuck is going on? And everybody's like <laughs> videoing them and taking pictures of them and being like, yeah, will you be on my blog? I want to get you on Snapchat. I want to do a TikTok with you. And the Terminator is like, what the fuck? <laughs> and then later you see the Terminator, like its arms flowing inside the servers that control TikTok. <laughs> yes. I'm going to mess up the TikTok algorithm. <laughs> Everybody will watch me. <laughs> that um, would be a great Terminator. Yeah, movie. Anyway. I would. I, I I encourage you to write that story, Charlie <laughs> Jane, or our listeners. <laughs> Somebody needs to write that. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to talk about what we're obsessed with. So, Annalie, what are you obsessed with right now? Well, I'm obsessed with something that I found through probably some terrible research hole on the Internet, which is that a lot of the classic illustrations on the cover of Weird Tales magazine, which if you aren't familiar with them, just Google Weird Tales covers from the 1930s. Mostly they are naked women being tortured by devils, naked women being tortured by other animalistic creatures. Um, And they often have just like fantastical kind of kinky or fetishistic scenes evoked. And to me, they were just sort of classic cheesecake. And what I recently found out was that those covers were by and large painted and drawn by Margaret Brundage, who was an illustrator in Chicago who had just, that was her main source of work for about seven years uh, in the mid-30s. And it's hilarious because she was credited as Imbrundage, so people didn't realize she was a woman. And these are just classic, like, I would call them, like, proto-Frank Frazetta type stuff. They're very fetishy, very porny. Yeah, they'll be like, you know, how can you create the tiniest possible nipple covering kind of thing? And I have actually a collection of postcards of her work, which I always just thought of as like, this is just like cheesy dude art. Uh, but no, she was she was the person who inspired so many artists afterward to do fantasy art in this vein. Um, a humorous tidbit about Margaret Brundage's life is that she went to high school and college with Walt Disney. And when they were in high school, she was in charge of the school paper. And so she got to reject some of Walt Disney's terrible drawings. So I think <laughs> that was good. Um, But the other thing about her is that, not surprisingly, when Weird Tales finally did reveal that she was a woman, immediately a bunch of dudes started jumping all over how terrible those pictures were and how they'd always been so terrible, even though apparently no one had noticed that before. And and El Sprague de Camp, who was a very popular science fiction writer in the mid-century, started a rumor that her model for all of her sexy, scantily clad women was her daughter, which... She didn't have a daughter. (laughs) She had a son. And this rumor persisted until the mid-70s. And it just became like, oh, well, of course, like, that's what ladies do. They draw their daughters in, like, weird fetishistic poses with demons. Yeah, you know, I don't think anyone would have said that somehow if it had been a male artist that he was using his daughter for these um, images. And so finally, uh, the record was... um, 
the record was uh, changed to reflect the truth when she was interviewed in the 70s before she died. And she said, nope, indeed, I never had a daughter. And her models were just uh, fashion magazines. She just used um, images from fashion magazines. Although I must say, if you check out a picture of Margaret Brundage, um, she was a hottie. Like she could have been using herself as the <laughs> as the model because she's like, yeah, she's like a tall, skinny lady with like jet black hair. She definitely looks the part of like gothy lady who made weird tales even sexier than it was. So go Margaret Brundage. And what are you obsessed with right now? So I'm obsessed with a novel that I just read called Beneath the Rising by Premi Muhammad, who is a uh, um, Canadian science fiction author and Beneath the Rising is so much fun. It's got sort of a magic meets science vibe. It's about a young teenage super genius inventor named Joanna aka Johnny Chambers who has invented like cures for cancer and like amazing, you know, energy systems and just she's transformed the world with her inventions and she's like 17 years old. She invents a clean reactor that, you know, has no environmental consequences and that can generate limitless power. And somehow this attracts Lovecraftian beings from outside our universe who want to conquer Earth and also take the reactor for themselves because they think that it's a source of power that they can use. And I won't spoil it, but it turns out that there's a lot more to the story than that. And a lot of it revolves around her relationship with her childhood best friend, um, a guy named Nick Prasad. And the story gets into some really deep stuff around race and class and privilege. And this whole sort of myth of the super genius inventor is kind of deconstructed over the course of the story. And it goes to some very dark places, but it's always fun and zippy and action-packed. And they travel all over the world trying to stop these demons from taking over the planet. And it just gets weirder and weirder and keeps having all these like amazing twists. And I just – I was completely riveted. I highly recommend it. It comes out next spring, so I read it kind of early. But definitely, definitely, definitely pre-order Beneath the Rising by Premi Muhammad. Sounds awesome. So thank you so much for listening to Our Opinions Are Correct. If you like our podcast, please leave a review in Apple Podcasts or any of the other places that you can leave reviews. You can subscribe to us on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or any of the other podcast subscription sites. And we are also on Patreon at patreon.com slash ouropinionsarecorrect and on Twitter at OOACpod. Thank you so much to the incredible Veronica Simonetti at Women's Audio Mission for being our producer. Thanks to Chris Palmer for the music. And thanks again to you for listening. Bye. Bye.